clown. Ah, Springfield gets the lamest balloons. Are you kidding? There's Funky Winkerbean! Over here, Funky! <gasps> Look, it's a Noid! Avoid the Noid! He ruins pizzas! Talk about making the big time. Getting a mention on The Simpsons. Not only a mention, but you know, a little caricature on a float. God, I remember that episode back in the day. But yes, Funky Winkerbean, Crankshaft, John Darling. All those characters that we've been reading in the newspaper for almost 50 years. And I got a chance to catch up with the creator of Crankshaft and Funky Winkerbean, and that is Tom Baddock. I got a chance to meet Tom at a Comic-Con about a year and a half ago. And it was really gracious, and I got, so I decided to email him one day, and I'm like, hey, would you be interested? And he said, absolutely, got right back to me, and we did it the next day. So it's a great conversation we had here on the Check Your Brain podcast with me, Tony Mazur, and Tom Baddock. So we, I, I got a chance to talk to Tom about Funky Winker Bean, about Crankshaft, who would actually play them in a live-action movie, who would you want? He gave me a really good answer for Crankshaft, so you got to stay tuned with that. The ever-so-shrinking comic section in newspapers, licensing characters, uh, and if you're a good artist, the submission process and how that's probably changed over the years. So I hope you enjoy this. If you're a big fan of the comics and you're a big fan of art and you followed along, you love this episode. If not, I hope you enjoy it anyways. Without further ado, my conversation with Tom Baddock. I, I'm really looking forward to this because I've been uh, I've been going down the road of the of the quote unquote funny pages and kind of getting nostalgic from back in the day, and uh, you know you just go through them and you see these these names and these these um, comics and the the drawings and everything and it just it kind of brings back for me that form of childhood and that's why last year when I, I got a chance to talk to you at the Akron Comic Con it was just a it was such a great opportunity, and I'm like, wow, this, this, that's him. That's Tom Baddock. I've been reading him my entire life, and, and reading him and, and looking at him. So it was a, it was a really cool opportunity. And uh, so I, I just want to thank you for, first of all, doing this. Oh, absolutely. I, I enjoy it. It's a chance to kind of connect, because the only way I connect otherwise is uh, you know, through the funny pages. Yeah, and first of all, I wanted to start out by something that you mentioned to me that I did not know of, and I did a little research, and it sure enough was the case, is that when you're doing, for example, Funky Winkerbean, that you do these a year out, right? Yeah, exactly. The yeah. dailies, because like what, from what I've heard from other comics, or from cartoonists, is that they will do the dailies, and they'll, you know, they'll do a bunch of them, and then the monthlies, or I mean, the 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 Sunday strips are kind of like a month out or maybe a couple of months out, but you do everything so far in advance. So it's not like you're going to do something on a pop culture event that happens next week. You got to make sure if you're going to do something that has anything to do with pop culture, that it's going to be evergreen by the time it runs. Exactly. Yeah. So you pick things like something like Academy Awards, you know, that's going to be there and uh, you know you can do something around that although you may not know the specifics uh, of that particular year but having said all of that uh this past year threw everything into uh into the wastebasket because i never saw the pandemic coming and so i'm a year ahead and i was never able to really deal with it until um this coming march in 2021 you'll see the first trips i had where I actually dealt with the uh, the pandemic itself and i sort of had a backfill a little bit to to deal with it so 
uh, I got caught. <laughs> well, because that ends up happening in a lot of ways where you have to go back in and kind of pluck some things out. But are, are a lot of those strips that you did, so say, for example, you did a strip in you know, a daily in September 2019 in order for it to run the next year, September 2020. Is it still able to where if you have to just kind of kick the can down the road a little bit that you're able to do that for 2021, 2022 or something where you could say, okay, well, let's just fill this. I've already done this, the pandemic, the vaccine, everything, whatever the case is. Now we can get back to quote unquote normal. Are you able to do that? Well, I'm able, I am able to make uh, sort of mid-course corrections here and there. Uh, the one that comes to mind uh, most recently was um, just before the election, I did a crankshaft cartoon where he gets a letter from the White House and they're asking him to back into as many mailboxes as they can before the election. <laughs> and I love that idea. So I was able to do that. It creates havoc with your schedule because then I have another Sunday that I've got a place somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, like with the pandemic, what you'll see in March is Funky talking about what they did during the pandemic. So I, I sort of had to sort of uh, skip over it and allow my characters to refer back to it periodically. Um, I don't know when this is all going to be over, but I can't guess. So I, I can't have them going forward wearing masks and everything uh, and then find out a year from now that everything is great, which I suspect, I don't know yeah. <laughs> if that's going to be the case. But um, so, yeah, it, it, it's tricky. You know, I mean, in, in a broad sense, I've always been able to cover things with the pandemic, like with everybody else, uh, it is you know, caught us flat-footed. I will say, though, in the entertainment industry is that uh, we're going to have a lull at some point with TV shows and movies and whatever Netflix and Hulu specials are coming out in the next couple of years, that we're going to have a lull because the, uh, people wanted content so badly at the beginning. Well, you're the opposite. You needed content now, and you're <laughs> fine down the road, if possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think I've worked it out. Uh, so I, I think it's... Uh, what happens, what basically is going to happen within Funky is we we don't see the pandemic start. We don't see it end. Uh, they just refer back to it occasionally in terms of talking about what was going on, which is good. I, I don't want to do a cartoon where I have all my characters masked all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that would be strange. So that that's sort of a workaround for me. It's kind of funny because it puts me on the opposite side. All my life, I've said that comics should be able to deal with weightier issues and more serious subject matter. Um, and they, they aren't required to be only funny. And now uh, I'm sort of avoiding the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic because uh, so many people are dying and I don't want to be writing about that right now particularly. So I've, I've kind of flipped a little bit. Um, so I, I just basically talk about how it's impacted my characters' lives. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that with doing stand-up for me, like me doing comedy, and noticing that whether it's an election year or whether it's a pandemic or whatever strife is going on in the world, it kind of like where you have a lot more preachier comedians from back in the day, the, the George Carlins, the Bill Hicks and every and everybody where it, it that kind of takes a back seat that people want to go to the comedy club and they're like, look, I just want to laugh. I don't want to be preached to. I don't want you to lecture me on anything. Yes, I realize there's a pandemic. Yes, I realize there's an election. Yes, I realize this. Make me laugh, funny man. Do you kind of feel that? It's kind of like that uh, now where there you, you've been somebody which, especially in the last 30 plus years, you've kind of taken more serious tone in your story arcs. Do you feel mm -hmm. that need that where you kind of go, maybe eh, maybe I'll throw in a couple of jokes here, a couple of gags just to kind of make people laugh and brighten their day up a little bit? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, and actually all along, Funky's always, the, the, the humor has always been there. I mean, it's changed over the years. Um, it's like you're talking about it. When Funky first started, I was doing stand-up. I was just doing gags. I was doing Rodney Dangerfield stand-up. Oh, yeah. I was, doing, I was just doing uh, one-off gags. Then it sort of morphed into sort of a sitcom where things, stories would run for a week. Um, uh, and, you know, I, the band director would want to use the football field when the football coach did. And so that would there was a nice little week I could work out. Then it kind of went into, you know, uh, longer form things like sort of movies and stuff. And as it as that happened, the humor changed and it, it changed uh, from, like I say, gags to uh, a more natural behavioral humor. Uh, but it's always been under there kind of underpinning things. But, yeah, you're right. It's and it, it's really funny because my reputation came back uh, to bite me on, uh, on Election Day. I had everybody lined up in funky voting. And I got a lot of emails from people saying they should be wearing masks and socially distancing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. Here we um, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so. well, what's interesting with Funky Winkerbean is where you had that changeover. So you had kind of that time warp a little bit. Uh, like the late 80s, you started getting a little more serious. And like you said, that you were extending as opposed to just like a gag a day, that you were doing right. more story arc and more of that. And then the, a narrative. Then by the time 1992 rolled around, you aged the characters. And then you did so again in the mid 2000s as well. And then you had, of course, Lisa's story, which we can get into as well. But what was what's interesting about how how the funny pages are is that when you pull them when you pull them out like sometimes not everybody's going to read the paper every day and yeah. so if you're going to and especially here in where i'm broadcasting here in akron we get the at our station we get the beacon two days a week monday tuesday so okay. if i'm not following along with wednesday thursday friday saturday and then the sunday that i may not know where we're going to go with this story so if you have you know, uh, you know, Les is doing something or whatever the case is, or even the, the story with Bull, that some people may not have caught all of that unless, of course, they're going to buy the treasury or you have to pick up the paper or go check out funkywinkerbean.com or your website or anything. So if you're a fan, you are going to check that out. But for the average fan, they might be left in the dusk and they're looking looking at the Tuesday strip and they go, well, that's it for this week. I don't I don't get the paper until next Monday. Yeah, that, that, that is kind of sad. Um, uh, one, you know, papers like a plain dealer who are delivering just a couple of times a week do sort of capture everything. You know, they, they, they do bring you up to speed, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, and I don't know how you deal with that. I, I can't write for every single contingency. Uh, you kind of hope that if people are really interested, they'll dig it out a little bit and try to find out what was going on. You can't, you can't appease everybody. I've never been able to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have you on here because the uh, the the new book now from uh, Kent State University Press, the complete Funky Winkerbean Volume Ten, which is uh, 1999 through 2001, and that's where you're in the thick of the the Lisa story around that time, right? Well, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of their. They, I've gone just like you said. I, I'd gone through my first uh, sort of transition to adulthood, a little bit of a time jump. So you're seeing the young adult lives of my characters. Um, and so, yes, it's the, it's the early days with Les and Lisa. Uh, they they get married. They actually get married in Montoni's, which is kind of my wedding chapel of love in the strip because I've had a, several weddings there. Um, but they get married dressed as Batman and Robin on Halloween. And then uh, Funky and Cindy actually get married at this point. So yeah, we're, the, my characters are starting uh, their young adult lives in this book. And uh, they're running into a bunch of situations. Uh, like there's a... Uh, where I'm, I'm talking about things that are happening 
like there's a bombing at the post office, which actually happened the same time that the bombing took place at the Olympics in Atlanta, which was creepy and weird. Um, so it, uh, that's where these guys are. That's where they're sort of starting to enter their adult lives. It, it's very interesting. And because uh, you, get, you get into that time where, because I remember when I was growing up and I grew up in the Cleveland area, so we would get the Plain Dealer and I would read my favorite strips out there. And I remember Funky Winkerbean was always near the top. So always near the top in the Plain Dealer, and that would always, and I would read it, and you, when you look through the old treasuries and the old, the, you know, the 1972 to the late 80s, where you were doing more gag-oriented strips, where you actually, I actually saw you grow not only as a as a person because you're really seeing the the adolescence of the characters, but you are growing yourself, and you're also seeing somebody like the the art was growing as well. It went from mm-hmm. kind of being I don't want to say doodles, but compared to what what it is nowadays, it really has taken off, and you you really do see that in the late 90s where it kind of it goes from being the the peanuts type of one dimensional character to almost like the the Sally Forth. I, I kind of saw that changeover around the 90s. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, my writing was getting more and more ambitious and it was starting to outstrip the look of the art. Uh, it, it was getting to be a little incongruous. Um, and I was also getting tougher and tougher to do what I wanted to do because uh, I had a, an image in my head of how I wanted the art to look and I wasn't able to quite achieve that. Uh, at that time, I was working with Chuck Ayers on Crankshaft and for a number of reasons we decided to get that's when we decided to get a year ahead on the strip and the only way to do that was to have chuck come on board and help with the penciling on funky because essentially we were doing three strips at the same time at that point uh and he did and um that that dramatically started to change the art because i could take it where i wanted it to go and that allowed the writing to improve because now i had uh an opportunity to write more mature work <clears throat> and do things that were more, uh, just more ambitious. Uh, so the art actually helped with that. So that change you notice also reflected what I was able to do as far as the entire script and the writing was concerned. And with the aging of the characters, that there's really, I, I can't think of many strips. I think maybe For Better or For Worse was one of them, and uh, Baby Blues, I think they aged the kids a little bit, but there really aren't, you know, when you look at Beetle Bailey, who's been around for 70 years, he's still... <laughs> He's still in the camp, and when you look at Dagwood and Blondie, the Dagwood's still making sandwiches uh, for what ninety years now. So, uh, with it, it was really ambitious, and it, and you're you're somebody who's it's it's a lot of polarized uh, critics that you were getting around that time, and especially with some of the heavier subjects. But it's ambitious, and it's it's a the work of a true artist, I have to say, of somebody who can kind of go to that level. I mean, you at 1992, you'd been doing Funky for 20 years, and you say, look, I, I, it seems like it's time to really, and, and to show off the maturity of not only the characters, but myself as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, I respect the opinion way too much to argue with it on this. But it, it, was, it, you know, it was a joy for me because, and there's two schools. There have been a few clips that have allowed their characters to age. And the greatest thing that that does is it allows, well, it does a number of things. It allows you as an artist to grow and mature, which is terrific. But it also allows, you know, when I was hired to do Funky, they wanted me to speak to my generation. And it was like the, you know, uh, early 70s. So everything that was happening there, there was no strip 
in the paper, except maybe Doonesbury, that was dealing with that and looking at that. And so they wanted me to deal with that and talk to my generation. And because I've, able, I've been able to age the characters and uh, keep them moving along with me, I've also kept my readers uh, attached to the strip uh, because they've grown up with those characters. Um, comic strips are unique. They come into the house and they, they, they like, unlike any other art form, they were there every single day. And if they're there every single day and they also grow older with you, uh, that's something pretty rare. And it, it makes the strip really gratifying. So I'm so happy I did it. It's a little scary at times, but in the end, uh, I, I'm real satisfied where it took the work. Certain strips, because I think, and I I don't mean to criticize any of your colleagues, but I, well, I'll do it for you if you feel the same way, because I've been... <clears throat> Uh, you know, around this time, we're recording this here right around Christmas, and you go back and watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown and everything. And Charles Schultz was somebody that I think everybody in this business looks up to in some way. And you got into that precarious position of marketing and franchising the characters to the point where you have uh, you have a every kid has a Snoopy doll in their home and everyone has uh, Woodstock and Linus and Charlie Brown and Lucy all over their Christmas trees and their decorations and then you look up and oh look there's Snoopy on a blimp and it gets into that weird situation of uh, the art and commerce where you have somebody who's that true artist like somebody like a Bill Watterson who didn't want any of his uh, he didn't want a, a, a Hobbs doll in your crib or your bed and he didn't want Calvin talking in a commercial then you have the opposite way of Garfield where basically Jim Davis created a character that he can sell and you are kind of in in that uh, interesting realm of somebody that there have been funky specials and crankshaft and you've seen it around but it's not also not plastered all over the place where I'm going to, you know, like maybe you'll see a t-shirt every so often, bootlegged or not, licensed or not, but uh, you're not going to see that. And th and that's really is that respectfulness of an artist there. Well, it, it's just, you know, it, it was nothing planned. Uh, I would have taken all the licensing people would have thrown at me, but um, <laughs> it didn't happen. And, and the, the silver lining to all that is just what you described. I, I wasn't tied down. I think in just some brief conversations I had with Charles Schultz, I think he felt a little restricted uh, that he couldn't do things with his characters because of the very things you mentioned. Uh, if my characters had started out when he started out and they were funky jeans and, and it sort of became like Archie, I never would have been able to do what I did. So uh, it allowed me to take a path that creatively was much more satisfying, you know, and uh, it, it, you know, it took me to this point uh, and, and things are going very well. I mean, if everything, if there had been all this licensing when I first started, uh, it would have been different. I'd have been in a much bigger house, but it would have been a different situation. Yeah, when you get into looking at, at Snoopy, and I think it started out they were doing car commercials maybe in the late 50s, early 60s, and it blossomed into what it became, where then eventually you had, uh, you, you had Garfield and you had... Well, it was mainly Garfield. I mean, you saw him in the 80s and the 90s that there was a suction cup Garfield in every other car that you drive by. And yeah. did you have that vision at some point? Like, obviously, Funky started a few years before Garfield, but by the time the 80s rolled around and everybody had a Snoopy doll and a Garfield doll, that you thought, well, how is there a way that I could try to monetize this and market this, or am I going to do this for art's sake? I, you know... Um... Like I said, I, I would have. It would have been nice if there was some licensing. Funky did have some licensing, 
And it was wonderful because within the context of the strip, uh, it worked very well. There was uh, a band, uh, a band shoe company. They created these shoes, Dinkles, and they used my band director character. And they actually made them sort of like Buster Brown. Uh, I, I was I've been at conventions where kids up come up to the booth and they they want to see the Dinkles, and they don't they have no relation. No thought that it's related to a comic strip. They just know that this band director character is in, in the face of every, you know, the soul of every shoe they wear. Um, Nestor turned out to be a very good thing. And even there, when I made the one-time jump, I called the company up and I said, look, if you want to drop this license, it's fine. Uh, because I, I'm taking my character out of his uniform. He's not going to be, you know, as licensable. Uh, and they just said, no, they just, again, adopted the Buster Brown things. We've established this this name and it works for us and that's good. So it would have restricted things. Uh, I wish I could say I, I did it for purely artistic motives, but I, I couldn't license anything to save my soul. And it was probably because of the way I wrote the strip. Um, when I started, I was talking with an editor at a different syndicate. Uh, I hadn't sold my strip yet. And he was telling me how you needed to keep a small number of characters very well defined and not make things too confusing. And even after I was syndicated with a different syndicate, he sent me a note reminding me of that, which I thought was very generous and very good. And I kept it on my drawing board uh, for years. And then it disappeared and everything just went to pieces. <laughs> I had so many characters, you know, started tumbling out and uh, it made it impossible at that point. After that, you really couldn't license Funky because it was hard to wrap your arms around it. Garfield, you've got a cat, easy. Uh, with Funky, it was a much more difficult concept to deal with. Where, where were you on the side of where Bill Watterson was in, in the fight with this syndicate about not trying to have his character's license? Because I think the only thing that he actually signed off on was a maybe a textbook for kids that had a couple of Calvin drawings in it. But outside of that, you know, no TV specials, no movies, no, uh, you know, plush toys or anything. Where were you on that fight against his syndicate? Well, I was right where I was. I, I, I said um, I, I would have accepted licensing that came through. I wasn't as uh, you know I wasn't as uh, strict as he was in my thinking. Uh, I, I think it could have been done. Uh, I don't think it ruins your your strip. Uh, whatever they do with the licensing, the strip is still there, and you can do with your strip what you want. So uh, that wouldn't have changed. Uh, I you know I respect what he wanted to do and anyway, how he felt about it, and uh, you know that 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 worked for him although he left the, the, the field entirely uh neither of those things i wanted to do <laughs> well because and you're going on i mean it, it's been almost well you know dating it all the way what 1972 is when funky began right and you've yeah. been doing crankshaft uh since the mid 80s and you also had a third comic strip what was it like with, with john darling what was it like because there was actually a time you guys were doing three strips at one time for that little bit in the late 80s what what <laughs> what's it like because i see jim borgman's one of them uh who does a couple of strips and uh, obviously johnny hart with bc and wizard of id did them uh, bef uh back before he passed away What's it like to do those two comic strips? Obviously, it's not just solely you on both of them, but what's it like to kind of oversee that that production and to do that and to pump that out, especially on such a, on a daily basis like that? Well, it, yeah, luckily for me, writing has always been something I've enjoyed doing and it comes rather easily. And so that aspect was covered, but you got to be young because it does suck up a lot of oxygen and uh, it's it's a ton of work. Um, but on the plus side, one of the things that was fun having all three of those strips is they were very similar, uh, set in sort of the same type of uh, artistic realm. 
and the same time frame. So I could cross them over, which was a blast, you know. And all of those characters, John Darling actually started in Funky. Uh, Crankshaft actually started in Funky. And so it was basically, it's sort of taking the Funky storyline and just blowing it out and expanding it further. Yeah, so it's not like two completely different. It's like, uh, and now time for something completely different. It, exactly. It's it's okay. I'm still in this universe, this funky Winker Bean universe, and I'm just taking this little avenue here. Yeah, I still do it now. I don't think people are paying this close attention to it. But uh, Lisa's son Darren married Jessica Darling, uh, the daughter of John Darling, and so those characters are still in the strip like that. Um, there's a lot of those little things in Funky where uh, I've got characters from all the strips kind of melding and, and, and crossing over. Uh, so again, again, it, it makes it a lot of fun for me because you sort of, I've always, I've always wanted to be Stan Lee. <laughs> the greatest thing, writing all those comic books was just such a, it seemed like it would be such a blast. And uh, so I, in a minor way, I kind of get to do that. Is that who influenced you, the, the comics of the 50s and the 60s? Or was it more of, because I, I, this could be me but in my interpretation, but when I've seen especially early Funky, it seemed like a lot of like uh, R. Crumb and some of the underground comics of the 60s. Was that an influence at all for you? Not those. Um, I really uh, was, I really admired Stan Lee's storytelling ability and w- what he could do and how he created that. And that's, I, why I always wanted to move towards things where I could I could work with more extended story arcs, and uh, I, so he was he was my template. I thought Stan Lee. There, I don't think there's anyone writing comic books that has ever been quite like Stan. Uh, and I think comic books are still here today because of Stan. It's just an amazing output that he had, and it, and to do it for so long and with that kind of just the the cachet that he was able to do that with it was it was incredible and. Because when I when I see some of the comics, especially from the, you know, some of those that have lasted from the 70s and the 80s and and the strips that I grew up with, and I can definitely see the influence because if you're influenced by Stan Lee, I can see the funky influence on so many of these younger strips now, the ones that have come out in the last maybe 20, 30 years that were completely influenced by funky. I mean, uh, I mean, you go from something like Fraz and... Uh, Foxtrot was definitely one of them, um, and you really just kind of see it's like that imitation. Not they're not stealing, but it's like that imitation. You get the imitators afterward that just try take a concept and really run with it, and you definitely see that influence in some of the more younger, like the the pearls before swine, and some of those as well. Well, I think that's that's how you learn. Uh, I think that's how you you develop your style. Tom Waits once said. You find people that you admire, you try your best to copy them, you fail, and that's your style. <laughs> that's what you're left with is your style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it was really good when I was able to see that. Now, it, when I when I look at some of the comics and some of them have come up to like, what are some of the best compliments that you've gotten? Because since since Funky began, that you also have uh, uh, Bloom County came out. I think 1980 was uh, when Bloom County was out, and uh, Calvin and Hobbes by the mid 80s as well. And some of those that have come out, like, well, what are some of the good compliments? And you said you've you you got a chance to have some conversations with Charles Schultz as well. Yeah, well, I, I got my biggest. Uh, compliments from Charles Schultz. Uh, I just had a note from him one time, which I periodically lose and then find again. <laughs> I think it finally made it into one of the Kent State books. In fact, 
it, I, I don't know, it may have been the new one out, volume nine, or the one just before. Um, but uh, he sent me a note, and in the end, the note with, I admire the risks you take. And that's like God patting you on the head. You know? Oh, yeah. It was, just, it was great. Um, and so in terms of compliments, that's got to be the number one compliment I've got. Especially the ones when people say that, oh, the, the the funny pages should be funny. And you say, well, no, not necessarily. The, these are, it's the comics section. And you go back to the days where I think it was William Randolph Hearst was uh, – in charge of like one of the first funny pages. I think I read that somewhere and uh, like they were a huge seller at one time. And then now you go to where it is today, where it's kind of like a leaflet in a lot of newspapers, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you get asked this question almost anytime anyone talks to you, but the the shrinking size of the comics, especially since the, probably since the seventies and eighties where you would have a, a large, funky winker bean almost like take up half a page, and it shrunk sure. so much to the level of where it is today. I mean, with uh, with the underground comics and the online comics, like what is what exactly is the future, especially in this world of where there's memes and uh, you know the Pixar stuff and everything? What like what is the future for somebody who's maybe a teenager listening to this and saying, you know, I really I'm, I'm a good artist. I want to get into whether you're graphic design. I want to get into this. What is the future for that? Well, obviously the future uh, exists online for them. Uh, first of all, if a young person in high school or college today probably isn't reading the newspapers. So, you know, that the actual newspaper, the American comic strip on the newspapers is uh, that's slowly fading away. Um, and eventually it's not going to be there, but it's going to, you know, they're going to, they already have. There's a lot of people just doing online only strips. And, uh, and that's terrific. That's, you know, what they do. I always wanted to be on the comics page. And so I think that's, that's where I planted my flag and that's the hill I'm going to die on. Uh, so they can keep shrinking it, but as long as it's still there, I'm going to keep doing it. You're just, you're going to keep adapting because yeah. for example, with radio, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not stupid. I realize that in radio where our, our days are, are dwindling, um, not dead. Radio is not dead. Some will say it is, but it's the adaptation, the podcasting and the, you know, the streaming and online videos and everything, web exclusive stuff. So there, it's always that room for, um, that kind of adaptation. It's just also if you think that you're going to make, <laughs> if you're going to make fifty million dollars drawing comics, just like you're not going to make Howard Stern money in radio. I think those days are long gone too. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's obviously changing. Uh, but like I say, uh, as long as it's there, uh, I want to keep doing that work, and that's one of the nice things about uh, the Kent State University Press bringing out these collections. I was a student at Kent, and. Um, and I have to tell you, when I was a student at Kent, I never saw this coming. <laughs> they, they're the ones putting out the the complete funky. And so, uh, you know, if I'm looking at a Sunday page and I go, lots of, you know, people are missing some of the detail, they'll see it in the book. So I, that's the joy of having these collections there because it puts them in a more permanent and a much more beautiful looking setting. Uh, in fact, volume nine, the one you were talking about earlier, is the first one to... Uh, uh, actually have the, the Sundays in color. And this this is, I mean, this is a heartbreaking story. But at one point, American Color, which was the, the one that paginated, that was the organization that paginated all the, the uh, Sunday sections, 
they just uh, deleted all their files prior to 1995. So the print values, the flash gardens, mm. all those things just disappeared. There were no color copies. And so we didn't have access to anything until this book, the current book where we're actually uh, finally past 1995 and we can have, you know, color comics in there. And they've never looked better. The printing's beautiful. So um, I live for that now too. It's nice to see the stuff in the newspaper, but I know it's gonna look better when it is the books finally too. What's your advice on somebody who wants to get into drawing the submission process, for example? Because I, I was somebody that before I got into radio and eventually doing stand-up, is I always wanted to, I wanted to be you. Uh, essentially, I wanted to be, you know, Tom Baddock, where I get a chance to draw and write cartoons, submit them for a paper, and then eventually my, you know, I still had that dream, and my mind got warped by Mad Magazine, like many of us in my generation, and that submission process of trying to get things approved to go to Mad. It, I'm sure that's changed, and you you probably you could probably at one time paper your wall with rejection letters when you first started, and then eventually you you got your foot in the door and get in there. How has that submission process changed when sending stuff to a syndicate uh, as opposed to where it was in the '70s? You know, I, well, I'm sure, you know, when I, I flew to New York, I had my hand, my printed copies that I left with all the syndicates. And, uh, you know, that was my approach. I, I just went and visited them and talked to them. I'm sure these days uh, they probably get electronic submissions uh, with animated versions of the strips that people want to want to sell. Uh, it's uh, that's not, you know, my milieu. And so my advice to somebody trying to get into it is useless now because it just doesn't. I, I'm sure they can still contact the syndicate directly, but uh, the approach and what you give them uh, is totally different. And that's a technical side. You still, you have to, uh, you still have to walk in the door and show them something that makes them want to not let you walk back out the door again. Uh, and it, that's the quality of the work and the quality of what you're doing has to impress them and has to, has to hook them and, and grab them. Uh, and that advice isn't going to change, regardless of what medium you're using to submit. Uh, it still has to meet that standard. And then, you know, so you go on to that and you try to submit, you try to get everything together. Like, do you need, would you, I'm not saying this for me, I'm like, I'm not, it, it's one of those asking for a friend type of things. But uh, in today's comics, is it kind of, do you need an angle? Like, do you need to say, look, uh, if I'm going to blow you away, it can't just be just for the substance. Does there have to be some kind of angle where I'm going to try to get something like, or like, like what Jim Davis did where he looked in the paper and said, well, there's, there's Marmaduke and there's Snoopy. There's dogs. Why not a cat comic? And then just draws a cat. Could there be something like that? Or is this, because one of the big things with Funky was it was relatable. Is, do you have to have that kind of hook and you have to have that angle when you're submitting? Yeah, I think you do, but I think it's hard to conjure it up of nothing. Um, I sort of backed into my subject matter. I, when I graduated from Kent State, I actually went to New York City and tried to get a job with Marvel Comics and with DC Comics. Um, and I, I came back home and Marvel Comics, especially I talked to Roy Thomas there, he was terrific. And he left the door open to submit more material. And I was gonna do that, except, uh, I, at the same time, I, I went into our local paper in Elyria. I was teaching uh, at uh, Eastern Heights Junior High in Elyria. And I went into the Chronicle-Telegram and showed them some of my cartoons. And just because I was teaching, uh, there were a lot of drawings of kids. And I would put little funny captions on them and stuff like that. 
uh, they like that. And so I started doing a cartoon strip for them once a week about kids in high school. Uh, and that's when I went back to New York with the second time. So I sort of backed into it. I think if I decided like Jim Davis to calculate and divide it up, I, I probably would have missed it because I don't think that ever works. Uh, what you present has to come naturally from you somehow. Uh, so I couldn't do like, you know, mice on Mars. I had to do something that I could relate to, or at least uh, like you said, uh, that's what, that's what the hook was. That's what, you know, worked for me. Uh, so I, I don't know if I could tell somebody how to discern the market and, 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 and pick what's needed because I don't know how to do that. Actually <laughs> it was definitely relatable, especially with Crankshaft where who reads the newspapers? It's usually an older generation and you have Ed Crankshaft, a bus driver who was a war veteran who played for the Toledo Mud Hens. And, you know, it was it was at least something where he was a sports fan, a war veteran. He had a blue collar job and it was really and, you know, he's knocking over the mailbox with his bus and everything. But it was it was funny. It was silly, but it was relatable. And that's why I think you've had this lasting power in this business because and people still read you to this day and they've been reading you for decades. It's just been fantastic. Well, and it goes back to what we were talking about before. Because I did the time jump, uh, I'm speaking to my audience. And my audience is the one that's still, they're the primary newspaper reading audience that's left. Uh, and uh, I, younger kids aren't picking up newspapers if they even know what they are. Um, but I'm speaking to the group that still reads newspapers. And uh, so I, I, I again, was, was fortunate. But I lucked out. If, again, if I tried to plan it, I probably would have botched it up. But I fortunately, it works out very well. Do you think if you did not revamp the comic strip in 1992, that it was just they were still in high school, do you think you would still in 2000, well, 2021, would still be doing Funky Winker Bean? Or would you have been just kind of tired of like the same concept? Because, I mean, you think about with these, a lot of these last, these comics with the lasting power, it's essentially, and no criticism of them to to an extent, but it's the same gags over and over again. It's Garfield hates Mondays, loves the lasagna. Uh, the Sarge beats up Beetle Bailey for sleeping. Dagwood likes his sandwiches. And you have this template over and over again. But with Funky and with Crankshaft, it's not the same template. It's the same, it's the relatable characters. We know the characters because we're longtime readers. But they can go in different directions, which is why you can talk about the pandemic as opposed to, oh, well, it's Monday again. I'm, uh, you know, this day can't get any worse. Or, hey, John's not, not eating his lasagna again. Like, would you have still been able to do Funky if you just decide to stay with that same concept that you started from the 70s? That's a real good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, what those strips have going for it is a, is a nostalgia because it doesn't change and people they hang on to things that uh they they keep in fact comic readers keep it familiar because they're very vociferous about comics should only be a certain type of thing um i don't know how i would have felt uh i have a hunch i might have ended up like charles shilton felt a little bit restricted maybe a lot restricted uh by that uh, and certainly in my age writing about high school kids didn't wouldn't make a whole lot of sense um so you know i i wouldn't i don't know what would have happened i I made that jump and that change just in time. So uh, do you, th like, I, you know, obviously I'm not going to ask you about, do you feel like retirement, but if you got to a point where you decided to start hanging it up, do you, could you see your work being done by another artist or another writer, 
uh, and, and continue Funky Winker being continue Crankshaft or w- whatever you have your name on after that? Or do you or would you feel that when you feel it's time that it would come to a logical closing point? That's an interesting question, uh, because like you say, the situation I've created for myself, I think it would make it difficult for people to to continue the strip like John Darling. Uh, when I ended John Darling, I killed him off. <laughs> so that makes it tough. And it can be done. It can be done. Uh, but uh, it, it does make it a lot harder. So I I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think about those kind of things once in a while. Uh, but I basically these days, I just kind of get up and focus on the fact that I'm able to get up and work on these strips today. And I, and I keep my focus very narrow and, and try not to think of the, the, the really broad picture. Uh, yeah, comic strips in the old days used to be legacy strips like the Walkers. It, uh, Mort Walker passed it on to his sons. They're working on the strip and continuing it. Um, it became like that kind of a family institution. Uh, my son, Brian, isn't interested in doing comics. So uh, seeing somebody else step in and pick it up, I'm sure they could do it. It's, you know, I'm not unique, uh, it, that unique. Um, and it might be interesting or it might be aggravating. <laughs> really don't know. I was actually reading some uh, earlier today. I was seeing some, someone posted on Facebook a uh, Peanuts comic strips not done by Charles Schultz because I think it was when he had, did, did he have heart surgery or a heart attack? Or it was, he had some health issue yeah. and somebody filled in. And I don't think the comics got released publicly or released weren't in the papers until much, you know, many years later. And that's where you think, you know, when Charles Schultz died, when Spunky died in, uh, Sparky died in uh, 2000 and ended the strip there, I mean, really what he outlived his comic strip by like one day or the strip, yeah. it was something like that, where after that, they the, the syndicates and the newspapers started uh, putting the classic peanuts from different eras and everything, which it works. But your strip is also one where you can't really go too far in the past because you do a lot more topical stuff. So if you were to rerun classic Funky Winker Bean, mm, it may not stand the test of time. Maybe that Peanuts does, but that's not, no fault of your own. That's just, that's that's the world you created. You can't really do, you know, oh, no, we're going to rerun the best of 1993 of Funky Winker Bean because by 2000, you know, whatever, whenever you hang it up or whatever the case would be, it might not make as much sense as what Peanuts would be from the, you know, 60s Peanuts to today. Sure. No, I, I understand that completely. I So I, I think that avenue, that makes it kind of difficult. Um, that being said, uh King Features, that syndicates uh, Funky and Crankshaft, they have a thing, uh, the Comics Kingdom. That's their website, and they where you can go and see the strips, uh, the current strips for all of their features every day. They also have um, what they call a vintage section, where you see old Prince Valiants, old Flash Gordons. Um, and that that's fascinating to me, because I have a lot of those uh, cached on my, uh, on my uh, iPad, because I like to, to follow those old strips every day. <laughs> One day Funky popped up as a vintage strip, so I'm there as a current strip and a vintage strip at the same time, which is a little disconcerting. If you got to that point where you were looking at uh, starting to slow down, would you go to like a Sunday-only strip, or are you are you going to keep going until you can't go anymore with the dailies as well as Sundays? Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Because the strips that have gone to Sunday-onlys, I don't, in, like Foxtrot is one of them you mentioned earlier, I don't. It, you lose a lot. I, I don't follow it in the same way. I Same um, here. I feel the same way. Yeah. 
So uh, it, that just seems to, to finish things. So um, it, to answer your question, I honestly don't know. It's uh, like I say, I'm still involved, you know, really involved in enjoying creating the storylines I'm doing now. Uh, well, how that movie ends, I'm not sure. Last question I'll ask you before we wrap it up, and I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Is if you're going to do a, if they did a live action Funky Winker Bean today, uh, and had, you know, some of the characters, whether it's Funky or Less, who do you think will play some of your characters? And, a, and I would love to know who would play Ed Crankshaft. Oh, you know, it's interesting. Ed Crankshaft has been optioned for almost 20 more or more years. And at each step along the way, there were different characters uh, that were, uh, or, or different actors that slated to play Crankshaft. One was Peter Falk, uh, George Kennedy, uh, Rip Torn, and uh, there, there have been a whole slew of them. So it, you you can see, I, Crankshaft I can see very easily being picked up and uh, somebody jumping in and using that. Funky, I don't know. The last time I gave that any thought, was during Funky's middle period. Again, just like the stuff that's in volume nine right now. Funky at that point looked like a young Ed Norton. And I thought, boy, Ed Norton would could really play Funky at this point. Wow, that is true, uh, yeah. That's changed. Uh, so I, you know, uh, I don't know who could, I haven't really even given it any thought because that hasn't been on the radar for a long time. But it was interesting for a long time because I sort of, you know, Hollywood and I flirted for a long time, but we never, never got engaged or, or married. Boy, I'm, I, I keep thinking of Crankshaft. Like, I, I thought, like, maybe if they did it a few years ago, because he's getting up there in age, was uh, Ed Asner as Crankshaft. Ed Asner was one, I thought. That he, he was never involved in anything, but I thought, man, he would make a great. And I just remember the last one, Bruce Dern. The very last Ooh. thing, we almost had something going. Bruce Dern could have played a great Crankshaft. It would have been fantastic. Uh, boy, George Kennedy is a great... I, I didn't even think about that. If George Kennedy were still alive doing Crankshaft, I, I mean, I... I'd buy a ticket, you know. The, unfortunately, there's uh, movie theaters. Really, there's not much of a future for them at this point. But uh, hey, if if you ever did that on uh, Netflix, and Netflix only on uh, Crankshaft, I would definitely be watching that the first day it came out. You know, where it did influence things is uh, this past year, where uh, they were going to make the least, or they made the Lisa Story movie in Hollywood. Um, that was just me using all the stuff that I picked up all these years and going out to LA and, and talking to people and being involved with these people. George Kennedy came out and we had dinner uh, here, you know, when he was first interested in talking this over, it was fantastic. So I took all of that, poured it into the story where they actually made a Lisa story movie. If anything would be made that that's where I thought you could, you could mm -hmm. do something with funky because that's a very self-contained, but powerful story. Well, it, I mean, it, I, I got to say, this has just been fantastic to talk to you. Uh, it was great talking to you in person, and, you know, we got to do it over Zoom now because of everything, but it's uh, it was just great. It was an honor to talk to you. Uh, the Complete Funky Winker Bean, Volume 10, 1999 through 2001, available via Kent State University Press. Uh, Tom, thank you so much again, and, uh, it, and, you know, good luck going forward. I'm sure we'll we'll talk at some point again. I'd love to see you at one of these Comic-Cons when they come back, and and, uh, you know, and, and one of these times, I, it, it, it's always kicking me that, like, when I see, like, people getting these original cartoons, one of these times I'll have to, you know, come by your place and uh, while you're in the bathroom, I have to snag a, an original <laughs> off your desk. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll make that a plan, Tony. That sounds good. <laughs>